As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Race is on, and McLaren ended its nine-and-a-half-year win drought with Daniel Ricciardo's victory in the Italian Grand Prix. But there was also massive controversy as title rivals Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen collided yet again. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to explain how it all happened and the fallout are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Well, Mark, we're going to get into the controversy in a minute, but after a, a slightly subdued Saturday, it was a another eventful race on Sunday, so Monza has has absolutely delivered, hasn't it? It has, yeah, with a bit of controversy, um, but it was even even controversy aside, it was um, it, it, it had a lot of it was a race with a lot of um, you know, Willy Wonty about uh, Danny Ricciardo and there was a lot of tension about it, will the, will the McLarens be overhauled, you know, they had a faster cars coming up behind them at one stage, so yeah, it was um, interesting and uh, yeah, it lived up to uh, sort of an old an old school sort of Monza thriller. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, what everyone associates with Monza. Not always the most dramatic races though in recent years, but this one was uh, yeah a, a real thriller. And Scott Mitchell, you've had a little bit of controversy and eventfulness this week with all sorts of travel plan changes and the like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now, well, now we're at the uh, now we're at the, uh, the the back end of the the trip and. I have my uh, negative COVID test to be able to travel home. Um, I feel much more comfortable making light of this. I can now joke about it and see the funny side of having a false positive in uh, my pre-event test, uh, which was a an interesting but unwelcome insight into how a positive COVID test can completely turn your life upside down. Fortunately, it did turn out to be a, a false positive um, rather than uh, actually sidelining me I had uh, and don't worry anyone listening and raising their eyebrows about why I was allowed to go I I tested negative before I flew out to Italy and then before I was allowed in the track I tested negative again so I had two negatives and as we all know two negatives cancel out a positive so um, 
uh, yeah, um, it, it's been a bit hectic. Rebooked flights, rebooked hire cars, and the like. Um, but uh, all worth it to get uh, back on site. Shame not to have um, you know the 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 cheering uh, masses of Tifosi. Uh, I felt that that was missing. I didn't quite get the uh, reception you had uh, at Zandvoort. Ed for for Max Verstappen from the Dutch fans, but yeah, as uh, Mark said, lots to lots to enjoy. I will uh, start this podcast with a mo- a, a, a note of uh, sympathy to the good people at McLaren who are celebrating an amazing result and uh, a um, uh, ending their wind drought, and it's uh, absolutely incredible. And no one's talking about it because of the crash. So we will get on to them. But obviously, the main thing is. Um, the main, the main thing is the crash. Well, we're all pleased that you're COVID-free and we're able to enjoy the, the Monza weekend. So, Scott, let's dive straight into it. We'll get on to the amazing McLaren win shortly, but we've got to start on the Hamilton-Verstappen collision. Just to remind everyone, the clash happened on lap 26, just after Hamilton pitted to cover Verstappen after Red Bull's slow pit stop and ended up with both out of the race. Stewards hit Verstappen with a three-place grid penalty for the next race for this incident. So what do you make of that decision, which is a question from Tamara Salter from the Race Members Club? I can't say that I... I can't say that I completely agree with it. Um, I do understand the steward's logic, but it's not something that I would necessarily have applied to this situation. I I felt initially that Max was predominantly um, to blame. Then uh, when I reviewed it, saw the replays, I, I, I felt that while Hamilton didn't angle for... For the apex and the second part of the chicane I felt that he could have left more room and, and Max had toughed it out around the outside and put himself in a position to to force the issue on the inside of the second part of the corner so I felt that it was some uh, an incident that both could have avoided and therefore was a racing incident even if Max was the instigator which is similar to my position at Silverstone I thought that was a racing incident even though Hamilton was the instigator I have to admit as I stood in the mix zone after the race and spoke to Max and spoke to Christian Horner, their language and their attitude didn't convince me that they genuinely believed Max was innocent in that in that clash. If you remember how aggressively anti-Hamilton the narrative was after Silverstone, which was obviously a very different kind of crash and was understandably something that triggered emotion from the rebel side, that was ferociously anti-Hamilton and defensive of Max's actions, whereas this was a very, very, very... I'm going to call it a very strongly neutral position from from Red Bull, insisting that it was oh, I was a racing incident. They both could have left each other room, which I sort of tend. You know, if 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 your driver's absolutely not to blame, then you go really hard on the other driver. If you think your driver's to blame, then it's just na- by nature you you default to oh this was a racing incident. So as I heard, as I listened to those guys speak, I thought oh well maybe they think that Max does have a pretty decent share of the guilt here and then I read the stewards verdict as well I I do see where they're coming from in the sense that Max has basically created the conditions for a clash from a starting position where he wasn't properly alongside Hamilton but this goes all the way back to basically the breaking point for turn one where Max was behind on on the outside and eventually he does get himself to nearly fully alongside but it seems like the stewards have determined that he needed to get basically wheel to wheel with Hamilton into the second part of the, the the chicane to to be given space I'm not really sure I share that view I sort of understand how they've come to it but 
Yeah, I, I, I do think that Max was more of the guilty party, but but just because Hamilton is uh, is not obliged to leave space doesn't mean he can't. So so I would um I I would have been happy with that being a racing incident, but if you're going to put the blame on someone and penalize someone, I guess yeah, you you penalize Max not Lewis. I find myself saying a similar thing. And in fact, maybe I'm just too lenient on this sort of thing because often I say that that should just be left as a as a racing incident. There is a, a kind of grey area where there needs to be a little bit of give and take between drivers. I'm not a big fan of all these slightly arbitrary how alongside you have to be rules that seem to crop up and uh, disappear depending on the circumstances. So I'd have been quite happy without uh, without a penalty, to be, to be quite honest. But Mark, a question here from Mark Riley from the Race Members Club who says, is there anything to the tactical foul accusation? And if so, why weren't such accusations levelled towards Lewis in Silverstone where he gained more in the standings than Max did today? Is there an anti-Max bias or an assumption that based on some silly moves Max has made in the past that he is automatically guilty and that Lewis being a seven-time champion has earned a level of infallibility should say that tactical foul accusation that one did come from Toto Wolf didn't it yeah I don't go along with any of it I think it's just two racing drivers um, refusing to back down I don't think there's anything professional or foul about it I think um, the, the each could have avoided it I think uh, Lewis actually was slightly more to blame um, in, in, in this instance um, the, by the time Lewis, it, uh, Max had put himself in the position where it was going to require some cooperation from Hamilton for them not to collide. Hamilton didn't give it, and he's not obliged to give it, but um, I think if he had have given it, they could have raced out there side by side, and I think Hamilton would have still dragged ahead on the on the run to Curva Grande and through there. So I think you know Max had put himself in the in the position and could have bailed out of it on the on the left on the little apron on the left but want, wanted to race the corner and I was just uh, made the assumption that Lewis would make the make the room but he didn't and so yeah they're both being very hard-headed about how they race each other and uh, I think rather than relying on the stewards that they need to have a sit down and talk to each other and uh, talk it through and have a bit more, uh, how would you say, I don't think respect, because I think they do respect each other. Um, just a little bit of a wider sense of cooperation needed in wheel-to-wheel and each understanding that um, if one sort of uh, pushes pushes things, the other one is, is going to respond. So let's not either of us push things. Let's just race in a clean way. Yeah, well, I think both of them would argue that they, they try to do that, but the other doesn't cooperate. So I think that tells you that there's uh, there's a little bit of a gap between their their, their understanding of it. It's uh, yeah, a difficult situation. Elliot Crosland's our next question. He says, Lewis has never crashed with a title rival this many times in a season before. Is this because Verstappen is so hyper-aggressive? I, I think I'd probably come back to Mark's last answer, which is it's irresistible force and a movable object, isn't it? It's two great drivers going at it, not giving each other any quarter at all and because the uh, the performance levels are pretty similar and because the, the stakes are so high they are on this quite literal collision course uh, quite a few times scott I'll throw the next question at you from simon t who says looking beyond the obvious incident both could have done more but max needs to learn to pick his battles and when to back out he can't push someone off one corner and then claim that's what happens when you don't leave space the next i guess this question refers to the first lap thing of course when 
Hamilton wasn't left room at the second chicane and, and took to the curb while he was battling with Verstappen. Yeah, I, I think it does. Um, I understand the, the the comparisons. There are a lot of similarities between the two incidents. Obviously, the key difference between them is that in the first incident, there's a there's a tiny bit of I think what looks like wheel banging, and it's a bit earlier in the corner, and it means that Hamilton's never really given the the option of hanging on round the outside, which means you never get to the point where in the second part of the corner they meet at the apex. So in that first lap incident, it doesn't get to a point where the question is, is Hamilton going to back out on the inside or Max going to leave him space? Because Hamilton's been forced onto the runoff. Now, so the, now the difference there between it, with the second incident is that you can argue Hamilton could have maybe been more robust in the first part of the corner and run ha- and run Max out of road a bit earlier. Or you could take the view that Max should have taken evasive action like Lewis did and bounced over the curb. Hamilton basically said that he thought Max was going to abandon, which I, which might explain why Hamilton left sort of like just not not quite a car length. Um, but but they are be, be, because of the because of the fact that the first incident doesn't end with Hamilton properly hanging on all the way around the outside like Max did. That's it becomes more difficult to compare them. Um, and likewise, if if Max and Lewis had bumped wheels on the first part of the chicane before they collided, it would have been a it would have been a different incident there as well. You know, Max probably wouldn't have been able to hang on around the outside. So they were similar, but they had some key differences. It's also one of those difficult incidents because the circumstances are unusual. As Hamilton just come out of the pits as well, and there's obviously the question of uh, the tyre warm up and that kind of thing, and the the relative speeds are a little bit different. So it's uh, it's quite an unusual incident in in that regard. Mark, a question from Colin Gallagher who says thinks this incident is a direct result of the change in driving standards that happened in Austria 2019 after the Verstappen-Leclerc incident. Seems that incidents like this where one driver does not leave space for another would now be deemed okay. Allowing to do allowing drivers to do this is always going to end badly. This is a driving culture that Max initiated. I don't think he can complain when it's done to him. Do you think there's anything in that? Um, well, yeah, probably a little bit. It's probably freed up um, what dr- drivers um, believe is a, will be deemed acceptable and which they can get away with. Um, but if we come back to that original uh, Austria incident between Leclerc and Verstappen, I still maintain Verstappen had won the corner going in and was entitled to hang Leclerc out to dry if he wanted to, and Leclerc had the option of backing out of it when the other guy's already won the corner to try and win it back, but you shouldn't be surprised when it doesn't happen. So I think that's just normal hard racing etiquette, and I think that's how it should be. It's a question uh, I don't think you should put um, artificial, um, ta- artificially tame rules and regulations around racing. And I think you should rely on the integrity and sportsmanship of the drivers uh, to uh, sort it out themselves. Yeah, it's a massively slippery slope because every time you create a regulation, there's circumstances where it can be argued to imply it doesn't actually apply. Drivers can't be getting the getting the ruler out as they run down towards the uh, the first corner to see if if they've got to the exact amount alongside to have to give space. It's uh, It's more dynamic than that. 
Scott. A question from William Sproyle. Apologies if I've pronounced that wrong. He says, not carrying banners of either drivers, but when do we ask the question of when does Max back out? I can't think of a time that he's admitted fault. Today's incident seems to be part of his personality. Unless inward analysis takes place, he will continue to have situations where he has something to lose. And this championship would be a runaway if not for Silverstone. Well, I... I kind of agree with the point that this incident was a result of Max's personality, but only because Max's personality is someone who who wants to race and he's dealing with things in the moment. His idea is pretty simple. It's rather than play the percentages and hang back and just pick up points for third and fourth and, and, and stuff like this, he wants to get the best maximum result on the day because if he keeps doing that and he does that 20 two or 21 or however many races we have this year times over the course of the season then he will have more points than anybody his view has always been that you focus one race at a time and then the championship will take care of itself so I I don't think and I've spoken to Max about this he doesn't race differently because of his championship situation so going into that first corner this is where like the that Mercedes tech tactical foul thing I think falls down because I I don't think Max I don't think Max is going in there thinking well it doesn't matter if uh, if we both don't come out of this corner because I'm still going to be leading the championship I think he's just he's recovering from a bad pit stop he know he's suddenly sees himself in a position to race Hamilton who is it was almost certainly expecting to be two cars behind He's got an opportunity, he goes for it, he thinks he's pulled it off and he's fallen just short. I don't think there's anything nefarious at play there. Um, but I do agree that afterwards, Max is, like 99% of drivers, not very quick to hold his hands up initially. But like I said, the vibe I got from him afterwards is very much someone who wanted to say, I think this was a racing incident, but wasn't willing to actually say those words. So he was sort of leaving himself a little bit of wiggle room. Yeah, there was a little bit of signs of that. I think actually looking at the bigger picture, I think this three-place grid penalty is going to be almost invisible as far as the championship's concerned, simply because Red Bull need to take a power unit and take penalties for Verstappen. Sochi has been talked about as the obvious place to do that, given that's expected to be a Mercedes track anyway. And he might well take it there and the, the three-place grid penalty becomes uh, irrelevant. So that's a little uh, sideline. If, if they weren't 100% certain they take it at Sochi, I imagine this will tip the balance now and make it absolutely certain. Question from Tamara Salter, Scott. This is something you've been looking into. So how important was the halo in the crash? Well, Lewis and Mercedes have made it very clear that they think the halo was very, very important. They've both used the phrase that it saved, its, saved his life. Um, Obviously, without doing any analysis, I can't say for certain what would have happened, exactly where the car would have landed. But I think it's fair to say when you look at some of the incredible photos and obviously the footage of the crash, um, it would have been a um, it would have been a very very unfortunate incident without the halo because something on Max's car is hitting Hamilton in the head, isn't it? It already it still did even with the halo. The the open part, the uh, obviously the halo isn't complete coverage. There is a part of the inside of uh, Max's um, uh, rear wheel that does still hit Hamilton on the top of the crash helmet. So, without the, ha- the halo there, that would have been a lot worse. I don't think it. it, it obviously, because it, because the halo is still relatively new. What is it like? Three years old now, um, or in its fourth season, I think. Um, 
and it's so obvious. So when you see something bounce off the halo, it, it just it's still the default reaction is to say, oh, thank, thank goodness for the halo. And yeah, it is obviously a great thing to have, but it didn't do all of the job today. Like I said, there was still that little bit, there is still that bit of exposure that the driver has. And we saw that when a car comes in at a certain angle, they the halo can't protect him entirely. But also there were other parts of the car that did the job. You know, um, the um, the roll hoop, for example, stood up pretty well to a Red Bull skating over the top of it. And also we shouldn't overlook the advances of of, of crash helmets because, as mentioned, Hamilton did take a, a, a thump on the, on the head from this and he said the adrenaline at the time meant he didn't really notice and he had a bit of pain in his neck later in the evening. I suspect he's going to feel very sore tomorrow. He wants to see a specialist to make sure there is no real damage. But the um the 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 stuff that these the modern F one standard crash helmets can withstand is incredible. So I think this is one of those where, yeah, on uh, on the surface it looks like and is a victory for the Halo, but there's a lot more at play there and it's a it's just a testament to how safe and strong certain parts of modern f1 cars are that one car can skate over the other land above the driver's head and both drivers walk away yeah and that's the main thing no matter what you think about the incident the fact there was no injury and in what could have been a, a serious accident is uh it's very very positive one question from James Pascalis, again, apologies if I mispronounced, Mark, is what was the issue with Max's pit stop? Christian Horner seemed to think that the wheel was done up but the car wasn't released. Why was this the case? Um, we have things called um, smart wheel guns and they, uh, they automatically uh, check that things are done and then send relays to the next stage of the procedure. So when the, when the wheel is uh, done, it then in theory, releases a signal to the jackman. Um, this used to be automatic, so you, you would press a button and tighten and put the wheel gun on at the same time, and that button would activate um, the signal to automatically go to the jackman as soon as it sensed that all four wheels were secure and been tightened. Um, but it's recently, with the new uh, protocols, which was um, brought into couple of races ago to sort of uh, bring a, uh, a more human performance aspect into it, you're no longer allowed to just hit that button before you start tightening the wheel. You must uh, do it afterwards. You, you must do the comp- complete the task and then press the button. So there's an element of human reaction in it. And if you hit the button in the old way, in the way that you used to do it, it just won't work. It'll just be like a driver pressing the DRS button before the line, it just nothing will happen. So once you've done that, you then have to sort of undo all the damage. You first of all have to realize what's happened um, and why, why there's no signal gone to the jackman. And then you have to sort of um, redo the procedure all over again, correctly this time. And of course, the reason that that's relevant in this section is it was that slow pit stop for Verstappen that then allowed two laps later Mercedes to bring Hamilton in to cover him. And of course, it was a slightly slow pit stop for Hamilton that then put them on that collision course. So it's uh, it's a little quirk of it that actually, for all the drivers, created the collision. The two pit crews actually created the the conditions for the uh, for, for the clash to happen, which just shows how F1 is is a team sport. But I think our feeling on this is. 
yeah, I think we'd all have been happy with a racing incident, but I think in the wider scheme of things, it's obviously another big moment in the the battle for the the championship. And I don't think any of us are surprised that a clash between the two happened again. But Mark, we can now move on to how the race was won, which is the usual question. So how exactly did McLaren pull off this one too, with Daniel Ricciardo leading home Lando Norris? There was a little bit of luck in that they had to depend on the misfortune of others. So, uh, yeah, Valtteri Bottas obviously took his engine penalties and started from the back. So that got one faster car out of the way. Um, Max Verstappen was really the uh, only about, you know, a little bit quicker over a lap, but slower at the end of the straight. So if you could get in front of Max Verstappen, you might be able to stay there. And that's what indeed what was happening in that first stint. And Lewis um, messed up his start in the sprint race, which um, ensured he was starting on the second row rather than the front row. So that was the other fast car out of the way. And um, Sergio Perez uh, didn't qualify. He's, he's just not as quick a driver as the, the two McLaren drivers. And um, by an amount that's bigger than the gap between the McLaren and the Red Bull over a single lap. So, yeah, put all those things together and great drives from Danny Ricciardo and Lando Norris and yeah it's a circuit very very well suited to the the McLaren it's very quick at the end of the straights and even you know you saw in the sprint race Hamilton couldn't get past Norris and you saw today that Verstappen couldn't get past Ricciardo and the same thing with um you know the, with Lewis once he was behind Norris again on, uh, on a Sunday so yeah, it was a very good car. Um, they played the strategy well, and yeah, the drivers did a fantastic job. And but there was a little bit of you know misfortune or mismanagement elsewhere that um, allowed it to come to them. And obviously, it's been such a long time coming for McLaren. This as well, nine and a half years. So into Lagos, twenty twelve, when Jensen Button won the final race of that season, was the last victory. They've gone through some horrendous times since, but the past few years have been ones of uh, pretty impressive recovery. So great for everyone in that team to have that moment. But Scott, Daniel Ricciardo is an interesting case because we've talked so much about his struggles. And I think if if you'd said a week ago, a McLaren driver is going to win a race this year, you'd be like, oh, it's going to be Lando Norris, isn't it? But as sometimes is the case, quirk of fate meant it was Daniel Ricciardo. And he was just delighted. You could see the weight that had been taken off his shoulders after what's been a really tough year, couldn't couldn't you? Yeah, he was already showing signs earlier in the weekend that the um, that the better performance he had here was just making him a lighter, more jovial character off track, the Daniel that we're used to seeing. And we'd seen that in the, the last couple of races after the summer break, really. He he says that he's come back from the, fr- from the break refreshed and feeling in a better place and I think anyone can relate to that if you have if you have a situation whether it's you know professionally personally whatever and things are sort of weighing you down and they feel like they're piling up and you're not really making the progress you want and it's just not it's just things aren't working out yeah it's it's still relentless 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 and then you get a break you get a week holiday two week holiday whatever and you can just you can just detox for a bit and then come back and try and take on those challenges anew. And there's an element of that's what Ricardo's been able to do with, with, with the summer break. So 
I think there are signs he's cracking the car. He's not there yet, but he's certainly much closer to the limit of it than he was at any time in the first half of the season. And then how many times have we seen before where Ricardo gets into a position where he needs to do something special to make something happen, but there is a chance to make something happen, and he just lights it up. He just rises to that challenge in, in such a spectacular way. And he was saying on Saturday after sprint qualifying that there's a chance to take the lead at the start. So he said, you know, it was all go full attack and aim to take the lead, try and lead out of turn one, and then work out what happens for the other, whatever it was, 52 two laps <laughs> once you've taken the lead. And you know what? He went out and did it. And he improvised. He worked out how he was going to stay in front. He stayed in front. He didn't put a foot wrong. He was quick. And it was a it was a very, very deserved victory and a very popular victory. And afterwards, trying to get him to put the win, um, the significance of the win, like emotionally, mentally, in the context of how difficult this season's been. It just, I asked him that question. It just sort of seemed to, leave him slightly lost for words for a few seconds. He didn't quite know how to handle it because it, it is a big deal. And he's talk, sort of talked a little bit about how you end up in a position where you start doubting certain things and it just, you're faced with a choice of either confronting it or it defeats you. And um, fair play to, to, to Daniel. He's, um, he's come back and he's, he's proven he's not going to let it defeat him. He's just the sort of character, isn't he, who, given that opportunity, will make the most of it. You have to feel a little bit sorry for Lando Norris being the uh, the second place man when uh, when this, this win happened. But I guess that's just one of those things that uh, sometimes happened. He drove a decent race as well. And uh, yeah, for it to be a one-two for McLaren's just just fantastic. But Mark, for McLaren as a whole, they had to do some serious soul-searching, didn't they, when they switched to the Renault engine and realised that Honda was not to blame for all of its ills. In personnel changes, obviously the Andreas Seidel, James Key era has started. A lot of the personnel are already there, so they're now being harnessed uh, better, better organised as infrastructure projects being invested in. So this win itself doesn't tell us anything we didn't already know about the progress McLaren was making, but it's just a great waypoint, isn't it? Uh, what now seems pretty likely to be its journey back towards the front on a consistent basis. Yeah, let's hope so. I think... Um that team was uh, for a while there um, vying with Williams to be the slowest on the grid. Not not all that long ago, um, but even then you felt talking to them that they had a good handle on what had gone wrong and why, and the um, pieces were being put in put together and in, in everything put in place to rebuild it. And um, it, it was a case of. Um, systems and culture i think um you know rather than any extravagant refinancing or anything like that 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 is that made the difference they they're still not um you know an absolute front rank team yet but they they're knocking on the door of it now um and they've made steady progress year on year so with the reset of new regulations um yeah let, let's see and then they they still don't have the same um, facilities in terms of tunnels and stuff like that, um, as say Mercedes or Red Bull or Ferrari. But you know, um, it's it's. I think it's um, going to be interesting to see just uh, the relative importance of that under the new regulations. Yeah, and just nice for everyone in that team to have this this day 
it's uh, it's a slightly unusual race, but it wasn't a, a complete fluke by any stretch of the imagination. So a good boost for them, and also very significant in our battle for the third in the constructors' championship. A one-two plus fastest lap, which Daniel Ricciardo got at the end there, is maximum maximum points. So hugely significant in that battle, and yeah, just a massive talking point in Formula One. There's loads more Italian Grand Prix talking points to discuss, but before we get on to that, let's talk about NordVPN. Now, a VPN is a virtual private network for those who aren't on first name terms, which basically means a way to protect yourself online when it comes to your internet connection. I've used VPNs for many years, and so have Scott and Mark, because we spend a lot of time traveling, so are constantly using unsecured public Wi-Fi in airports, hotels, and the like. But actually, even if you're not traveling around endlessly as we do in F1, it is massively useful. It allows you to hide your IP address, change your location in order to access geolock websites. It's been particularly useful in the past when covering Formula One. So it's one country on the F1 calendar that shall remain nameless, where accessing your emails and certain social media platforms without a VPN is not easy. So very much one of the tools of the trade. In fact, that's why I originally got access to a VPN, but hadn't actually realised quite how effective it is in terms of security and encryption. So a great way to protect your privacy and security. NordVPN, high speed as well, which would be a deal breaker for me because some other services in the past have been somewhat clunky and just made using them difficult, but no problem here. I've got my VPN active right now and the recording of this podcast is flying along, no problem. Easy to use as well and you can quickly jump between 60 odd countries to access content and safely use public Wi-Fi without any security concerns. My favourite thing is that it does this by creating an encryption tunnel, which sounds a bit like an F1 aero device to me. So that adds to the appeal. So if it sounds like a VPN is for you and it's essential for anyone who values online security, head to nordvpn.com forward slash the race and use the code the race. And that's the race with no hyphen this time. So just nordvpn.com forward slash the race and use the code the race. Our special offer is for a limited time only and allows you to get a massive 73% off a two-year NordVPN plan and a bonus four months on top of that as well. And it's no risk because there's also a 30-day money-back guarantee. So head for nordvpn.com forward slash the race. But before you do that, Scott, let's get on to our next Italian Grand Prix talking point, which involves a visit to Valtteri Bottas' sympathy corner for very positive reasons today. He was fastest in qualifying, won the sprint, still didn't start from pole position thanks to introducing that new power unit and then stormed through from the back of the grid to finish third. This was Bottas properly on form, wasn't it? Yeah, this was um this was Bottas at his best. This was the 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 guy that we've not seen too much of this year, but we've seen in spades during his uh previous seasons with with Mercedes. He just uh he he, he just did a great job in in qualifying, put together a very good lap. Um, and we rightly started not what no sorry didn't start from pole position because obviously that that doesn't count. Um, qualified fastest, started first for the for sprint qualifying, did a perfect job in sprint qualifying to earn pole position for the, no he didn't earn pole position for the Grand Prix because he had the grid penalty so he started at the back so it was um it was it was actually in a way it was Bottas in a nutshell in that he. He proved that he could be incredibly fast. He proved that in certain circumstances, he can absolutely lead from the front and, and do the business. And yet something finds a way to just sort of meddle in his best laid plans and stop him from actually achieving exactly what he wants to achieve. But he then did drive a very good Grand Prix. Um, we know that Valtteri is sometimes 
guilty of uh, uh, getting stuck in, in, in races. Um, but I think um, he, he was making very good progress already in, in, in the first stint. Maybe, maybe he didn't quite come alive the way maybe Mercedes needed him to or possibly even expected him to. I don't know in the in the final final stages, especially after the, the safety car, but it was still a pretty good recovery from the from the very back, wasn't it? Yeah, he had the bit between his teeth and we have seen him get a little bit stuck at times, haven't we? And he was probably helped by the fact that he had the hard tires so he could he could push on a little bit. But actually I do wonder, Mark, if the fact that Bottas has now got everything sorted for next year, the Alpha move set he knows what he's doing. It's all out there in the pub in public. Do you think that's maybe just helped him just dig a little bit deep and and find a bit more? Or do you think it's just coincidence? I think it might have taken a bit of tension out of him, definitely. And it, you know, I think um, things seemed a bit flow very freely for him this weekend, and he didn't seem to get um, caught up in a, the, the the spiral he sometimes does. So yeah, it might have something to do with it. You know, knowing that his future is settled and, and knowing that for the first time he's got a multi-year deal as well, so he knows what he's doing for the next three years. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, an ideal for him. Have that drive heading to Sochi, which is a track he excels at. He's good on the smooth surface there, so he can probably look forward to in a couple of weeks taking pole, leading a big chunk of that race, then having to wave his teammate past, <laughs> most likely given the uh, the importance of the points there. But it's good that Bottas has played a, uh, a big role. But also we should talk about Sergio Perez, Mark. He finished third on the road, but dropped to fifth thanks to a five-second Penalty for exceeding track limits while passing Charles Leclerc at the second chicane. Tamara Salter asked, why didn't Sergio give the place back to Leclerc? Should Red Bull have told him to give it back straight away? Because ultimately it cost him two places and was a poor decision. Yeah, obviously they should have in hindsight. And I think probably the thinking was that um, they figured he would get a five-second penalty, but also figured he'd be able to more than pull out five seconds on the Ferrari. Um, but he didn't. Oh. Yeah, that's, that's how it came. And then Valtteri caught as well, so that lost him another place because um, he wasn't five seconds clear of that either. So, yes, obviously they, they, sh- they should have done, and that would have been the, the, the wisest policy. And he's been done for this uh, earlier in the season. He, he went he went off and then regained positions under the safety car at Imola and was, was done for it. So, yeah, I think it just um, sometimes the uh, adrenaline gets the better of him sometimes, and um, he, he, some of his choices aren't, um, aren't the smartest. Yeah, he had a pretty difficult weekend. He was pretty dejected after the sprints because I think he was uh, hoping he'd make up a load of places, but uh, he didn't. So, uh, yeah, d- difficult weekend. I had to say, actually, I thought his, his final Q3 lap was actually pretty good because he was right out front. He didn't have a toe. And actually, if you look at what a toe is worth around Monza, his gap to Verstappen was actually pretty good. So I think that was actually a sneaky, reasonably decent qualifying lap from him. But, yeah, otherwise a, a pretty tricky weekend. But we mentioned the sprint there. So th- this is as good a time as any to address the second sprint race. I'm going to call it the sprint race because it is, it is literally a race, even though it dictates the grid. It's not a qualifying session. It's a fair bit of social media criticism of it. And Ray Soto says, Gasly crashed out, Verstappen didn't push, and most other drivers seem to play it safe. So what value does the sprint format provide when the goal for most teams is to maintain rather than risk impacting Sunday's race? Um, I think in this case it didn't work as well as at Silverstone, obviously. Um, there were, um, I think, just the way that certain cars were, the, the strengths and weaknesses of certain cars, it, it, it tended, particularly at the front, it tended to trap the, um, the, the positions, tended to freeze the positions. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, you're going to have that. You're going to have 
good races and bad races, um, good sprints and bad sprints. And this was, uh, yeah, a, a, a bit of a dull one. There was no tire difference. You know, everybody's on the same, um, more or less the same tire. You, you got a free choice, but it, um, what, there wasn't all that much difference between the, the two tires over, over such a short uh, distance. And of course, there was no no strategy variation, so yeah, it just it did, didn't really work here, but I'm sure it'll work. Uh, I'm sure it'll work fine in Brazil, for example. I'm I'm gonna play I'm gonna play Ross Braun's advocate here. Not I'm not gonna defend the sprint race itself because it was it was just drab. There was nothing redeemable about what we saw in that sprint race on on Saturday. But uh, and I will caveat this with the point that. I don't think this was the absolute intention of Formula One, so I do think they're still getting lucky in this regard. The sprint race did have an important impact on what we saw on on Sunday. We wouldn't have seen we wouldn't have seen the race we saw, which was obviously fantastic for various reasons and interesting for various reasons, without a sprint qualifying race on Saturday, because obviously it was the sprint race that dropped Hamilton back a little bit put McLaren in a position to be starting from the front row. Um, and ultimately, that's obviously what let Daniel take the lead. It's what <clears throat> put Hamilton trying to to, to to come back through and obviously ultimately sent Hamilton on a collision course with, with Verstappen. So, and there is already the pre-existing, and I think now universally accepted truth that Friday is just much better with the, the sprint format. It's, it's a bit weird um i haven't experienced it on site for the first time it's just it is so weird to just have such a drawn out situation but if you're just comparing it session for session i i thought fp1's more interesting than fp1 is on a normal weekend um what watching qualifying's better than watching fp2 the new fp2 is a pretty is a boring session but it's kind of like a weird version of the old fp2 so that's kind of net neutral and then Watching a race, the jeopardy of the start sort of has its own own interest. So that's sort of okay on a Saturday, even though it's just it's not that great. And then in this situation, it created a set of circumstances that actually led to a really good Grand Prix. So I actually think if you if you take the sprint format as the overall picture of the weekend, which is what F1 has been basically begging everybody to do, then actually I think this was quite a good weekend for it. But the irony is, is that the worst thing about the sprint format is the sprint, because <laughs> the Saturday race is comfortably the worst bit. Yeah, I'd agree with all that. I think it's positive that it creates an extra thing that happens, so something significant each of the three days. I must admit, I wasn't quite as down on the, the Monza sprint as some were, probably because I was just fairly realistic about what it was going to be. It was short and sharp, a little bit happened, and then it was done. I must admit, I... I think some of Formula One's aggressive messaging on it and also some of the broadcasts as well, when you got the build-up to the race and they're talking about all the strategic options and the headaches, it's like, well, all the strategies, start on softs and drive around, start on mediums and drive around. Well, there's, there's two options, basically. That, that was about the limit of it and they didn't make a huge amount of difference. So uh, I, I certainly think that this is a format that's undercooked, but the fundamental framework, I agree, is all right. And yeah, you've got to ask, would we be talking about a McLaren win? If we hadn't had the sprint, would we be talking about another flashpoint in the championship fight without the sprint? Who knows? Who knows? But uh, it probably did contribute to a, a pretty eventful main race. That's part of the objective, I guess, as well. But, Scott, let's get on to other matters. And McLaren 1-2 was pretty much that 
worst case scenario for Ferrari, but a track that played to its weaknesses to have Charles Leclerc fourth and Carlos Sainz sixth did limit the damage in that battle for third in the constructors. McLaren's now 13 and a half points up the road. Leclerc actually reckoned that was one of his best five Formula One drives, interestingly. Uh, but the race was fairly straightforward for, for Sainz behind, but he did have that big impact at Ascari on Saturday in the extremely uninteresting FP2 tyre evaluation session. So that was his third crash in four events. So what exactly is going on there? Well, I don't think Carlos fully understands, to be completely honest. I I noticed that the the crashes have, have now come, and there's, there's three and four. It's Hungary in, in qualifying in Q2. Uh, it was uh, Zandvoort in FP3. And now here in in FP two, and obviously FP two was on a was on a long run where Carlos says he wasn't pushing at all, so that's why it caught him out. But in these events, Carlos has actually been, I think, more competitive than ever uh, over one lap versus versus Leclerc. Um, I can't remember the exact breakdown of it, but I'm pretty sure in 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 Hungary he was uh, in Hungary. I think he was slightly quicker than Leclerc in FP three, then crashed in quali. And then when it was Zandvoort, I think he was basically, um, uh, I think he obviously shunted in FP3, but then bounced back and basically matched Leclerc in qualifying. And then I think it looked like he had, obviously he'd out-qualified Leclerc at Monza. So my theory was that Sainz has taken a step in his sort of understanding or ability to take the Ferrari to the limit. And he's operating more closely to that limit now. And it's catching him out a few times the way he's now driving the car to take it to its limit is leaving him slightly vulnerable in certain situations and initially I put well I put that to Carlos initially he sort of said well I I, th- I think I've been at the limit of the car close to the limit of the car all season but then the more he talked the more he seemed to start convincing himself that actually maybe uh, maybe there was something to it he admitted that there is clearly something mid-corner where there's a lot little loss of rear stability that he can't quite put his head around so he wants to really look into it and understand whether there's something in the setup or something in his driving that he can do to, in his words, protect himself against the trait that the Ferrari has. So I, I think it's just simply that Leclerc is absolutely excellent and he's in tune with the, the Ferrari and he, he, I think he's just a bit more comfortable with the behaviour of the car in certain conditions. And I think maybe Carlos is still a little bit more vulnerable to that because ultimately he is only halfway through his first first season so it is it is too much the spate of crashes needs to be sorted out but hey at least is it's better to be this quick and basically matching Leclerc and shunting than being nowhere and also shunting and related to that Sean Rooney sent in a question that's been directed at me he says that science has again finished behind Leclerc is there a clear number one number two dynamic now with Ferrari or will there ever be the possibility of Carlos leading the team I wouldn't say it's quite got to a number one number two dynamic I think Leclerc always has been and probably will continue to be on kind of a given single lap. The driver who's got that extra tiny bit of, of pace in him to really live on the edge. And maybe that is why uh, Carlos has had a few uh, a few mishaps. So it's kind of going broadly where you might expect it. I think science is, is close enough to... He hasn't settled into a number two role. Let's let's put it that way. I think that's still kind of up for grabs. I suspect that, uh, that Leclerc is certainly not going to be <laughs> become the number two there ever so I still think that's an interesting dynamic and if they're up up the front again fighting for a championship it could be quite an quite an interesting one I, th- I think science has done pretty well but he's also just reaching for that last little bit so yeah there's a 
really interesting story to uh, to plot there. Mark, we should quickly talk about Aston Martin. Lance Stroll had his best result of the season in seventh place. It's actually a pretty well-executed drive. What did you make of his performance and that of Aston Martin overall, given Sebastian Vettel was in the wars? Uh, yes, a good solid performance from Lance uh, all weekend, really. Um, well, part of the uh, the reason that Sebastian was in the wars was partly because of Lance on the first lap. He sort of very rude coming out of uh, Roger Chicane in passing Seb to such an extent, and uh, Seb had to back off and lost a lot of places that he never got back. So, yeah, I doubt whether Seb would feel quite as charitable towards Lance, but uh, he, yeah, overall he did a good job and um, he was uh, slugging it out there with um, Alonso and uh, George Russell and uh, Ocon and, you know, the, the, for a big portion of the race and uh, yeah, didn't really put a foot wrong. Yeah, there was a lot of time management chat during that race. I was keeping an eye on the onboards and Stroll, I think, felt he'd done a pretty good job, him and his engineer. So uh, yeah, good to see uh, Stroll picking up a, a decent result. Scott, Williams, George Russell just seems unable to stop scoring points now. That's his third in four events with ninth. He did need a bit of luck here, though, didn't he? He did. Um, he also, to be fair, he also needed a bit of luck in the uh, the other times he scored points. <laughs> so um, that is just what it is when you've got a Williams that is capable of doing something a bit better in qualifying than the race. But here it was the other way around. What just didn't seem to have the pace in, in, in qualifying and then was... Uh, Looking okay on Sunday. Nicholas Latifi was actually putting in a, a, a lovely drive, but it was um, it, it was the timing of the safety car and the pit stops that helped Russell sort of vault from pretty much a nothing position. He would have been, I guess, heading towards a what thirteenth or fourteenth place finish, and then obviously Max and Lewis collide, so that's two places. And then the timing of the safety car gains him another couple of places, I think, against Esteban Ocon and Latifi. So then he's suddenly running inside the the top 10. He'd spent, whatever it was, two and a half years trying to get there for Williams. Now he doesn't seem to be able to to get out of it. So this was um, I think this was a decent drive from, from, from George, but I think it's one of those where it, it can happen in F1 where it's not a particularly special drive, but it happens to be one that results in a top 10 finish. There will be plenty more Russell performances in a Williams that, that were better than this one. Yeah, well, certainly wasn't his absolute uh, absolute best. And I think Latifi suits the sprint format because he tends to start quite strongly in free practice, actually. And I think he, he carried that through the weekend. On paper, he supposedly outqualified Russell, although in real terms he didn't because in qualifying, Russell was very slightly faster. But, uh, yeah, one of those things. There was a little bit of... Oh, uh, so what does that mean? Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you there, Ed. So what does that mean for George's qualifying record? Well, his teammates... The, in the mad world of Formula One statistics, Latifi did outqualify him. However, when we start looking at uh, uh, average gaps and that kind of thing, it, it's very, very difficult to factor a race into that. So as far as I'm concerned, qualifying, we're talking about measure of single lap pace. So yeah, I'm, I'm not having that. In, in pace running. terms, in pace terms, yes. But my point is that we can no longer say that George Russell was outqualified his teammate at Williams 100% of the time, can we? Well, I might continue to say it because it is technically accurate. I might, I might phrase it carefully. It's one of those, uh, one of those things. But yeah, Latifi did start ahead of him on the grid, and no grid penalties affected Russell. Let's uh, let's put it uh, put it that way. But uh, Latifi was also involved in a little bit of annoyance for Esteban Ocon because Ocon was irritated. He cut the um, second chicane on the first lap, and he went past Alonso and Latifi, and then he backed off and let Alonso pass, but not Latifi. 
and he was irritated the stewards took so long to tell him to let Latifi back past and then he got a five second penalty for shoving Vettel off the track at the second chicane later on which Ocon wasn't very pleased with it seemed to me to be a textbook violation of the the, the rule in the international sporting code of if you defend you have to leave a car's width when you move back over he argues that because Hamilton and Leclerc got away with it a few years ago that, that he should have done um, I don't really agree with him on that, but he still got tenth place, so uh, not a not a bad result for Ocon on a weekend when Alpine wasn't wasn't great and Fernando Alonso was up in up in eighth place, which was about as good as it was going to get for them. But let's get on to Alfa Romeo, Mark. Antonio Giovinazzi seemed to strengthen his case to stay at Alfa Romeo by qualifying seventh. Then he weakened it by clattering across the curves at the second chicane on lap one of the race and getting a penalty for hitting Sainz, which also fired his Alfa off. Rejoined and finished in thirteenth. So. What's the net gain of him for this weekend? Is it is it kind of nothing? Yeah, there's no net gain. <laughs> He's, um, we've still got the same questions uh, as before. We've still got the same impression of um, pretty good pace. He might have been a little bit unlucky, I think, in there, but yeah, he's he's not making an overwhelming case for himself, which he needs to do. Um, you know, given the, the number of candidates for for his drive. Yeah, it's not ideal. I asked Chevy Pujolar about it there, head of trackside engineering, and he said that he feels probably Giovinazzi has taken another little step in terms of finding that that next bit of pace once he makes Q2, because sometimes he's sort of flown in Q1 and then not not kind of found the extra time. The last couple of race weekends, he's done that. First laps just aren't Giovinazzi's friend. This one was his fault. Often they're not, but he just seems to be one of those drivers who finds himself in the wrong place for, for whatever reason. But he was momentarily battling for fifth in that race, so it could have been very, very, uh, very, very different for him. Uh, Scott, we are going to mention Haas on this one. Nikita Mazepin and Mick Schumacher now have a decidedly frosty relationship. What do you think Mazepin hitting Schumacher during the race did for that? Uh, well, I think it would have been very bad for it had Mazepin not come out immediately afterwards, held his hands up, apologised and said he completely deserved a penalty for it. So I think that was actually quite quite important because it has been particularly um tense and both drivers have said that it's not good for the team to have that but neither driver seems to know exactly how to 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 address it I I do think that Mazepin is the problem there in not necessarily even some of the stuff he does on track is actually very few times on track with Mick I can think of very few that I feel like he's actually been completely out out of line the obvious ones being moving on the straight in Baku and then, of, of course, again at Zandvoort. But it's the off-track stuff and the fact that he doesn't seem to let stuff go. He's got a bit of a bee in his bonnet and he keeps making comments. I've noticed a little bit of a trend this weekend. It might just be coincidence where he doesn't... There's a f- quite a few times where he doesn't refer to Mick by name. He says, you know, the other car or my teammate or something like this, which I just think is just like a... I don't know, it might be nothing. It seems a little bit unnecessary and slightly petty to me. But in this situation, in this particular situation, Mazepin knew that he'd um, he'd got it wrong. He thought he had a chance to get him because he felt that Mick was weak on the brakes there. He 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 gave it a go. He thought he was going to get far enough alongside and it was only basically once he was committed to the corner that he realised he hadn't got far enough alongside. And when Mick turned in, obviously, uh, it, was, um, it, it, it was contact, but... Yeah, I, I don't think this will particularly worsen the relationship, partly because I don't think there's much of a relationship there left, but also just because Mazepin did actually admit he was wrong and say sorry. Yeah, that will have taken a bit of the sting out of it. And to be honest, he was absolutely wrong. I don't think he was even trying to pull off a pass. He's just sort of 
left his nose in there slightly uh, slightly carelessly. Uh, they did have a little bit of a moment on the first lap as well because Schumacher was kind of wandering around on the outside into the second Lesmo and uh, Mezepin sort of moved to the left to sort of take the line. I don't know where Schumacher thought he was going to go, but there was a little bit of contact there, so there was that extra little thing that was uh, that was not in the in the coverage. But a big headache for Gunter Steiner there. Hopefully Mazepin can just concentrate on what he's doing rather than a rivalry with Mick Schumacher because he is showing signs of actually starting to deliver on uh, on his ability. So, uh, yeah, an interesting one to watch. But let's just circle back round to where we started with the championship fight, Mark. Do you think do you think what, what happened at Monza today makes any difference to that? Do you think they'll just go to the next race and it'll be the same? Do you think there'll be any modification in behaviour? It'll just be the, just the general part of the ramping up of this fantastic championship fight. <laughs> I don't know. I, it's hard, it's very hard to predict because, as we saying, you got, you got two guys absolutely, um, you know, very very hard headed, uh, race very very hard. Uh, Lewis has always um, prevailed in the past, but um, he's come up against someone that refuses to back down, and Lewis is, uh, you know, not. Is not competing with them um, as a. He's not adopting, say, the the old hand approach. He's he's taking them on on Verstappen's own terms, and I think that's a matter of pride to Lewis at at the age that he's at. So, I, yeah, I think when you got pride involved, is it's it's difficult to uh, make predictions on how two two individuals are going to behave. So, but I, yeah, I, I really do hope, um, for the sake of somebody not, one of them not getting hurt, that uh, they sort this out between themselves, and because that's um, that's the surest way of uh, ensuring it's uh, it's it's clean and it doesn't keep coming to this. Yeah, we want it to keep going on this battle, but it must not escalate to a to a certain level. So, yeah, let, let's see how it goes. What, what do you reckon, Scott? Is this just going to be one of a sequence of these incidents? Do you think we're going to see it again in the remaining races? Or, or do you think that they will finally think, actually, we we need to stop this happening? I think it's important. I think it's inevitable that they'll they'll come to blows to some degree. I said it after, the, after Silverstone. Um, it happened on the first lap here, even if it's only a little bit of wheel banging and someone being sent over the runoff. Um, whether it has to come to the sort of crash we saw today and at Silverstone, I really hope not for the reasons that Mark outlined. But also from a sporting point of view, I don't want this this championship fight and this battle between two great drivers to come down to the end of the season and then one one party not being able to accept the outcome or sort of pointing that the other person's got a sort of uh, empty victory because of the points lost at this, this race or something. It's... Um, it's always a bit. Uh, it's just it, it can just be a bit unsavoury, can't it? I think um, I don't think this what happened at Silverstone and here are the same things. But you can argue that you know Max lost a win because of an incident instigated by Lewis at Silverstone, and Lewis may well have lost a win here, if not a second or third place from an incident instigated by Max. So maybe an eye for an eye. There you go. You've both cause problems for the other let's draw a line under it here and just try and be i don't mind if you're going to wheel bang or race race hard but fair but let's uh let's not get carried away because it's it's getting a bit much yeah well the steward scoreline has it one all between the two of them when it comes to these clashes but but for me as long as it doesn't get out of control 
we are witnessing one of the great world championship battles. It's still going on. What is it? Five points separating them. Verstappen, of course, came out this weekend gaining two points, which actually is a pretty big win considering this probably should have been a weekend where Mercedes maybe got a a one-two. So that's a positive for Red Bull. But yeah, I'm, I'm just delighted that it's it's still happening. I want to see them cross swords on track more times this season, but I, I kind of hope it doesn't end up with them uh, with them off the track again. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But whatever happens, people are going to be talking about 2021 for a very long time. Well, thanks very much to Scott and Mark for your insight. As usual, head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen as there's loads to read there. Mark Hughes race analysis, my driver ratings. Scott's taking an in-depth look at the role of the halo in the Hamilton crash. But remember also to check out some of our other podcasts, including the Race IndyCar podcast and our MotoGP podcast, and also take a look at our YouTube channel. Formula One's going to take a little bit of a break before heading to Sochi off the back of this pretty relentless triple header. But of course, the race F1 podcast will still be with you in the gap to bring you everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. (laughs) 